This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Discam Medical Monday, I'm your host, Dr. Jean Gerson. Today, Dr. Michael Huth, specialist neurologist at NetCare Linksfield Hospital. This is our second talk. We started talking last time about two weeks ago with Dr. Huth about headaches. Thank you very much, Dr. Huth, for joining us again. It's a pleasure, Dean. Good morning and hello to the listeners. Can you just give us a short recap about what we spoke about uh, in the last episodes going through headaches? Yeah, sure. So just to recap from the first episode, uh, Dean, we discussed just the basic principles of headaches and treating headaches. Uh, things like the first thing is to make sure the patient is safe and there's no life-threatening cause for the headache. Secondly, make sure you have the correct diagnosis. Think holistically and work in uh, multidisciplinary teams and using lifestyle and medication uh, as treatment. Remember that uh, headache patients don't want to be abandoned. Headache is a headache treatment's like a journey, and follow-ups very important. We discussed the broad categories of headaches. Uh, we discussed that there are primary headaches where the disease is the headache, and there are secondary headache headaches where the disease is a symptom of another. Sorry, the, the headache is a a symptom of another disease. So a secondary headache is a symptom of some other disease process. We discussed that there's also episodic versus chronic headache. So an episodic sort of uh, headache occurs in attacks and a chronic headache will occur sort of on a daily basis for usually more than 15 days of the month. And then obviously there's life-threatening versus non-life-threatening or dangerous versus safe headaches. In primary care, Patients seeing GPs uh, or out there um, in the community, 95% of headaches will be primary headaches. Then there will be no cause for the headache. The actual headache is the problem. And about 5% will be secondary headaches where the headache is a symptom of some other illness. It has a cause. Um, in terms of the treatments, for the secondary headache, it's easy. You just have to treat the cause. Take away the cause, the headache will go away. Um, for the primary headaches, much more difficult, and there's obviously acute therapies, so things that we use, or abortive therapies, which we use to treat a headache when the headache comes. That's an abortive um, therapy. And then there's therapy, preventive therapy, where we take every day to prevent headaches from coming in the first place. Uh, and lifestyle is obviously very, very important. And you know, I just went through some important questions to ask on the history uh, when you're dealing with a patient is to ask questions like the about the age of onset and how the headache started, where it is on the head, the severity, the character of the headache. Is it throbbing? Is it uh, pulsatile? Is it a constant squeeze? Is it a knife? Was it very sharp or like needles? Associated features like visual symptoms, nausea, tearing of the eye, etc. What precipitates the headache or exacerbating factors? the relieving factors, and then the usual questions of their sort of social history, their medication and past medical history, uh, and their headache history, and their what, what sort of medication they use in terms of uh, painkillers. Uh, and then we just discussed briefly at the end the tests that are usually done, which is usually um, imaging of the head and neck, lumbar puncture in certain uh, conditions where you suspect infections, bleeding in the brain, or when you want to measure the pressure, and also some blood tests. Okay, well, thank you for that uh, comprehensive wrap-up. So what are we going to speak about today? Well, I thought today would be a good um, day to speak about secondary causes of headaches. So the main primary headaches, which are the most common, like I said, 95%, 
are common diseases such as migraine, tension-type headache, cluster headache. But the secondary headaches, which are a lot more interesting and can be a lot more dangerous, uh, are quite varied. And they're, they're a much more sort of uh, interesting bunch of different varied um, illnesses and problems. So just to like run through a few, uh, just to sort of uh, give you a taste of what the secondary headaches are. Remember, these are diseases that um, cause a headache. So the headache is, is, is one symptom of a disease process. And the way to sort of um, treat this headache is by tackling and addressing the disease process that's occurring. So, for example, headache or facial pain that might be coming from a problem in the neck, for example, or with the uh, anatomy of the skull or cranium, problems with the eyes, problems in the nose or sinuses, issues with the teeth or the jaw, or the joints or muscles around the jaw, problems in the mouth. Uh, there might be issues with uh, trauma that has happened to the head or neck. Uh, the patient might have a problem with the, the vascular system in the brain or inside the head. So there's problems with the blood vessels, either arteries or veins. If the patient has an infection in the cranium or in the head, or if there's inflammation there, or if there's problems with pressure, if there's too much pressure in the brain or too little pressure, and uh, the pressure is too high or too low. Uh, there may be problems with a patient taking substances or new medications which have a side effects of um, headaches, or they may be withdrawing from things that they've recently stopped, such as nicotine or caffeine, etc., etc. And then obviously other dis- um, diseases such as metabolic or endocrine problems and psychological problems. Okay, so what what are the most common causes of secondary headaches? You've named quite a few, but what do you see mainly in your practice? Obviously, myself as an ENT, I see a lot of uh, sinus headaches. And uh, what do you see? Well, in in our practice, um, in terms of secondary causes, I think the first thing to to explain or to go through would be um, very sort of more dangerous causes or things that would render the patient unsafe. Uh, as I said in the beginning, it's very important to make sure right away when you're dealing with a patient who's complaining of headache, whether they are a safe patient or an unsafe patient, because there's quite a different sort of uh, tempo to treating the patient who is safe versus unsafe. I think like the, the main sort of um, dangerous conditions seen in practice in neurology are uh, infections in the brain. So that would be meningitis, which is an inflammation or infection of the lining of the brain and of the cranium. Uh, and that can be either chronic or acute. If it's an acute meningitis, meaning that it occurs over hours or days, it uh, is usually due to a bacteria or a viral cause. If it's chronic, meaning it occurs slowly over days or weeks or even longer, then it's usually due to either tuberculosis or a fungal cause. And Meningitis is quite um, well known to cause a syndrome of, you know, fever, headache, usually a generalized headache, neck stiffness. It can be nausea and vomiting. There's a symptom called photophobia where a patient is bothered by light and the patient usually has a sore throat and may have a rash. Um, then other infections that can cause headaches is an encephalitis. So meningitis is inflammation of the meninges or the lining of the brain, the lining of the internal um, cranial cavity. 
encephalitis is a inflammation of the actual brain tissue itself. And there you see often a fever. The patient is much more confused and more out of it than in, in with the meningitis. And usually that's most commonly a viral um, cause. So you often see features that would be in keeping with a viral illness. The other thing that I think is important for the listeners to know uh, in terms of serious signs of, of, of headaches and things that we see uh, sort of coming out of casualty or the emergency department are thunderclap headaches. I think I might have mentioned this in the first episode, but thunderclap headache named for the sounds that thunder makes when it strikes, when lightning strikes, um, is a headache that builds to maximum intensity and is usually very, very intense and builds to this maximum intensity within one minute. So it's a very quick and very, very severe headache. And usually that's quite a dangerous warning sign or a red flag and can be caused by quite a few um, dangerous conditions, mostly vascular, but also some non-vascular causes. So let me just tell you a few of the causes. The most important and common one um, that is very, very dangerous is a subarachnoid hemorrhage where there is bleeding into the area between the meninges or the lining of the brain and the brain tissue itself. The second one is an arterial dissection, which is basically a tear in the arterial wall. Um, then you can get uh, clots that form in the veins within the brain. You can also get inflammation in the arteries of the brain and the vessels of the brain, which can cause a thunderclap headache. And um, sometimes a sudden severe hypertension or blood pressure problems or bleeding into certain areas of the brain can cause that uh, thunderclap headache. I think where does, most, it, where does an, where does an aneurysm fall in, in those causes? Would that be the, the ruptured aneurysm causes a subarachnoid hemorrhage or would the aneurysm itself be able to give you a, a thunderclap headache? That's a great question. So in terms of subarachnoid hemorrhage, about 80% are from uh, an aneurysm bursting. So just for the listeners to know, an aneurysm is basically a balloon-shaped problem of um, a vessel where the vessel wall has become weakened and it balloons out. And then as it sort of gets bigger and bigger, it eventually pops just like a balloon and the blood, you know, you bleed out into the surrounding tissue, depending on where that vessel is. And obviously when it's in the brain, it can be quite catastrophic. So the main issue is that um, that bleeding, that sudden bleeding causes irritation of the area around it plus changes in the pressure of all the fluid around the brain, and that causes a sudden severe headache. Aneurysms themselves um, can themselves also cause headaches at different times, um, but it's much, much less likely. So usually, um, often it's described that a person, before they have a catastrophic bleed from a subarachnoid hemorrhage, may have what's called a warning headache or sentinel headache where there is a small leak from the aneurysm and a very small subarachnoid hemorrhage that doesn't cause them to lose consciousness or to have um, any neurological signs except for a, a headache. Um, so that's one one cause of the aneurysm causing a headache. The other one is that um, sometimes a an aneurysm which is unruptured may produce headaches if they are um, very large. So unruptured sort of 
aneurysms or arteriovenous malformations where there's been congenital malformation of the arteries and veins together can cause headaches. And those are usually uh, mimicking migraines. Um, you know, the, the uh, unruptured aneurysm is usually completely asymptomatic. I mean, Dean, if we look at people that have autopsies, about 5%, maybe 5 to 10% of patients will be, will be found with unruptured aneurysms when they die. So it's very, very common. Uh, and a lot of these patients, 20% of them might have multiple aneurysms, two or three of them. Uh, usually it's found more with patients with hypertension. But these, these aneurysms almost never cause, they never rupture, and they never cause any symptoms of headaches or anything. So the patients will never even know they had them. So an, a completely unruptured small aneurysm shouldn't cause headaches or any problems. It only happens when there is um, sort of a high risk of the, of, of the patient bleeding that you can have preceding headaches. Okay, we're going to take a short uh, ad break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. Michael Huth, specialist neurologist. We're in our second show talking about headaches. We're busy talking about secondary causes of headaches. We've just spoken quickly about uh, aneurysms and thunderclap headaches and subarachnoid hemorrhages. And uh, very interesting, I guess, uh, scary if you if you don't know what's going on. But thank God, not uh, not so common. So you were talking about. Uh, all the, many of the different causes, and we're saying ruling out what is dangerous or what is a, a red flag. What else? Uh, what else would you besides the meningitis and cephalitis and the subarachnoid or bleeds? Um, are there any other red flag headaches that you would you want to mention? Well, just to talk a bit about uh, like the, the section headaches, well, tearing of these vessels. So we see sometimes. Um, which can be quite, quite catastrophic as well, although most patients do quite well. Um, you can either tear the carotid artery, which is in the front of the neck, going into the brain, or the vertebral artery, which is named after the cervical vertebra, going up the back of the neck into the brain. And we see this sometimes after tra- like a sort of minor traumatic event, sometimes from sport, maybe even violent coughing, uh, going to the hairdresser with hair washing, the way that patients, patients sort of move their neck and lie in the, in the basin at the, at the hairdresser. And quite often we see it after um, chiropractic manipulation. Uh, usually it's more common in, in patients that have connective tissue diseases and they have actual problems with the vessel walls, but it can occur in very healthy people. Uh, end of last year, I saw it in a lady who had just been sitting on an airplane for a long time with her head in a strange position while she was having a conversation with somebody for a couple of hours. And usually that's quite a, a, a focal headache. It's usually one-sided. If it's the carotid artery in the front, you could have the headache around the orbit or in the sort of forehead area. If it's the vertebral artery at the back, it could be uh, a headache in this sort of neck and the back of the head. And it usually presents with this uh, abrupt onset of a headache and other neurological symptoms that are similar to a stroke. And then there's a headache I think that we should talk about, which is not as dangerous but does need to be treated quite quickly, and that's uh, an illness also involving arteries called giant cell arteritis. 
which is important for the listeners to be aware of. And that's a, a, an illness where there's an inflammation of medium, medium sized arteries. Um, and it occurs mostly in patients that are 50 years and older. It uh, has a preference for Caucasians and it's about probably twice as common in women than men. There you often get a headache that is, is, is mostly one-sided over the temporal area. In fact, the other name is temporal arthritis, not only giant cell arthritis, but they also call it temporal arthritis because it favors this temporal artery of your temple. And often the, the headache is like of a throbbing nature. And that area of the head is very, very sensitive to touch or to brushing your hair or combing your hair. You might feel what's called jaw claudication, which is aching in your jaw on the same side when you're chewing a lot or aching in that temporalis muscle when you chew. And there can be associated symptoms of vasculitis or general sort of arthritis type of symptoms like a loss of appetite, loss of weight, uh, fever, night sweats, feeling um, fatigue. And maybe some aching around the muscles, etc. Usually that area is very tender on the, on, on the head and there's a sort of a abs, sort of enlarged vessel there that's quite pulseless. And we do a special test called ESR in the blood and it's usually quite, uh, raised and that gives us the clue as this being the correct diagnosis. And we treat the patient with corticosteroids or cortisone. And it's very important to make the diagnosis quickly because if you leave the um, the patient, they can have other vessels get involved, uh, which can block up and cause big problems such as blindness or other neurological deficits uh, due to lack of blood supply to certain parts of the brain and other nerves. Then uh, I think uh, we should probably talk about veins, uh, Dean. And I think that one one sort of other sort of dangerous or concerning secondary cause for headaches would be a venous thrombosis or a cerebral venous thrombosis. Everyone's probably heard of DVTs, deep vein thrombosis, what happens when you um, take a long trip on an airplane and there's lots of stasis and there's not enough flow and a clot may form in your leg and that could, of course, shoot up to your lung. But you can have clots forming in um, the 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 brain itself, and this is quite problematic. It usually happens either there's a, a clotting problem with the patient, the patient might be severely dehydrated for some reason. It happens a lot in pregnancy and uh, around just after delivery for the first six weeks after delivery. Because pregnancy itself is quite hypercoagulable state. It's quite a state where that where promotes clotting. It can happen from being on um, the oral contraceptive and it can happen when you have very thick blood, either from too much red cells or you have a sort of blood um, malignancy such as leukemia or lymphoma. When this happens, uh, you can get either a thunderclap headache, you can get a sudden sort of blockage of that vein, which can cause an increase in pressure, or you can get a very slow, gradual uh, onset of um, a headache over weeks or months, getting worse and worse. The problem is that as the veins block, there's no um, drainage of the blood out of the brain tissue, and you often can get um, small little sort of uh, infarction or dying off of the tissue like a stroke and bleeding into the brain. So it can be quite, quite problematic.
Um, yeah, from I mean, I we, we, we used yeah. to see from an ENT point of view. I mean, it's more of an infectious cause. But we used to see often with the chronic infected ears and mastoiditis, we'd see sometimes a sigmoid sinus thrombosis or a cavernous sinus thrombosis from an untreated sinus infection. But I guess you can get it just from the, the, I mean, those are infective causes, but I guess you're seeing it more from a blood, pure blood clotting. Uh, right. Course. I mean, obviously if you have infections around these veins and, and, and you do get a, what's called a phlebitis, or infection of the vein, the vein wall or tissue itself, it can clot up. And then obviously post-surgery, if you, if you've been damaging a vessel wall or damaging a, a vein in, in either ENT or neurosurgery, it can lead to, to various problems in terms of clotting of, of the veins. I would say about 10% of these venous thrombi, thrombi or these clots, uh, present with thunderclap. Sudden onset headaches, but about 90% is very slow, gradual, insidious. And you need to basically, um, take a very good history. The doctor needs to take a good history and do some very special imaging of the veins. Sometimes it's also important to do a lumbar puncture. Um, and hopefully it can be caught in time and then the patient gets anticoagulants and blood thinners to, to dissolve the clot. Okay, we're going to take another short break and when we get back, we'll speak about sugar levels and blood pressure and how they can affect headaches. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. Michael Huth, specialist neurologist at NetCare Linksfield Hospital. We're speaking about headaches. Now, second in the series, we're speaking about secondary headaches. What about sugar levels and, and blood pressure? I know you mentioned earlier on that uh, high blood pressure can cause headaches. Uh, what about high blood sugar, low sugar? Can you tell us about uh, blood pressure and sugar levels? Hyperglycemia and fasting headaches are quite common. Um, so usually uh, patients who have hyperglycemic attacks for whatever reason related to diabetes or other things can, can produce headaches that are usually quite similar to, to migraines. If you do skip meals or you do have a drop in your sugar and you are a person who suffers from migraine, it will often precipitate a migraine. And then there's obviously the fasting headache that's a kind of non-parsatile, not migraine-like at all, just a continuous bilateral diffuse squeeze in the frontal area, which is usually directly proportional to the duration of how long you've not been eating for and occurs most likely after 16 hours of not eating. And that's the kind of, you know, um, end of Yom Kippur headache that you have, uh, you know, until you sort of drink some water, eat a meal. And it's more common in patients that usually have and suffer from headaches than patients who don't have headaches, but can occur in patients who don't um, have headaches. Dehydration may play a part. Um, and... I think in terms of blood pressure, what's important to note is that hypertension or high blood pressure is very, very common illness. It's quite prevalent out there, and most patients are either mild or moderate hypertensives, and they won't have headaches. Uh, headaches usually occur in the setting of hypertension when hypertension is quite severe, uh, or if there are abrupt changes in the blood pressure. Um, there's even a condition called hypertensive encephalopathy, which basically means there's a sudden severe rise in the blood pressure and it causes a syndrome of headaches and nausea, vomiting, 
um, loss of vision, confusion, and sometimes seizures and, and other focal neurological deficits. Uh, and you will see even changes in terms of the brain on MRI. And you really need to you treat them and you bring the blood pressure down and all of that sort of resolves. Then there's um, two con- maybe two areas I would talk about in terms of blood pressure and headaches. One is an episodic type of headache that occurs with sudden spikes in the blood pressure where there's a, a hormone-secreting tumor, what's a fancy name called a fear chromocytoma, which is basically a adrenaline-secreting tumor from the adrenal glands, and it's out surges of adrenaline into the body, raises the blood pressure sharply, and you can get sudden headaches that uh, often are pulsating and last for about 30 minutes to an hour, often associated with other signs of adrenaline, sweating, anxiety, tremor, nausea, being pale, heart racing, etc. And there you have to test uh, all the metabolites of adrenaline um, in the urine, etc., etc., and you might need to either have the tumor removed or to have some sort of um, anti-adrenaline type of drug or blocker. The other headache in um, in high blood pressure and hypertension, I should mention, is in pregnancy and pregnancy-related, and that is the headache that often comes with a condition in pregnancy called preeclampsia or pregnancy-induced hypertension where there is um, – there's high blood pressure, there can often be edema and protein in the urine uh, after 20 weeks gestation. And there you can often see bilateral pulsating headaches, um, usually exacerbated with physical activity. That's really most, most of the blood pressure causes of headache. Uh, we've been talking about uh, sugar levels and, and blood pressure. What about pressure on the fluid around the brain itself? often heard about people with high pressure around uh, the brain and you spoke about having lumbar punctures. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what makes the fluid around the brain and the pressures and why this would cause headaches from this high pressure? All right, Gene, so that's a, that's a big topic, but, but just to break it down, I guess, um, there might be too much pressure. So you might have a high pressure system in the head, in the cranial cavity, which can cause a headache. But you can also get headaches from too little pressure or low pressure headaches. And that would be due to sort of stretching of the tissues. Um, I think that it's probably important to know that high pressure can be caused by increased fluid uh, in the contents of the brain or the CSF or the blood uh, components of the head for, for many, many, many different reasons. Uh, the worst of which would be um, sort of fluid or swelling around a tumor or some other scary um, growth. But an important uh, subject to for the listeners to understand, which I may never have heard of, is something called idiopathic intracranial hypertension, which is basically high pressure uh, in the cranial system, and we don't know what causes it and it happens without any other abnormality. So it's like a clinical syndrome of raised pressure in the head for which no real cause can be find, found. It used to be called benign intracranial hypertension, but it's not really benign because you can actually lose your vision from this problem, and that occurs in about 10% of individuals. 
about 90% of individuals have a headache with this problem, but you don't actually have to have a headache. And typically, typically what happens is progressive headache over many days or weeks or months, and it's usually worse in the morning on waking up. Uh, and there's classically a visual disturbance of blurring of the vision and something called transient visual obscurations, which means sudden loss of visions or sudden patches or shadows uh, of visual loss usually when changing posture, like bending down and then getting up um, or having sort of, uh, you know, often see it with people, for example, doing doing prayer, prayer rituals. Um, then there might be uh, conditions, other visual conditions like photopsia or little sparkles, flashes of light, and you might get double vision. And this is all um, problems from the raised pressure within the cranial system. We know, we don't know really what causes it, but we know it's associated with a lot of different things. Uh, it's usually described in the typical patient as somebody who's, who's female, because it's very common in females, uh, usually a person in the ages between 20 to 40, so the fertile years, and somebody who's overweight or obese. And it's got quite a connection with, uh, with patients that are overweight. And it doesn't have to be that you, that you need to be obese, but Usually it comes after about a minimum of five kilogram weight gain, five kilogram weight gain over your baseline. So if you have gained weight recently and you developed a slow chronic headache, then it's a, it's a possibility. So it's, it's associated with certain endocrine or hormonal conditions, including corticosteroid treatment and growth hormone conditions, thyroid problems, polycystic ovaries. Uh, certain drugs and medications can cause it, uh, tetracycline, antibiotics, and vitamin A, and anti-inflammatories. Uh, sometimes it's associated with sleep apnea, um, patients who've had renal transplants. Really, it's a condition that uh, your doctor has to think about. He has to test your vision. He has to test your visual fields. You might have to have some fancy tests of the optic nerve. Uh, there are classic findings on an MRI of the brain that look, uh, that show that there's high pressure. And then there will probably have to be a lumbar puncture performed to measure the actual pressure. Once the diagnosis is made, there's quite simple treatment in terms of just promoting weight loss, using various medications. And if the, the, there's a feeling that the optic nerves are under uh, threat and you, a patient might lose their vision, they might get a neurosurgeon to insert a shunt to take off uh, fluid or pressure off the, off the cranial cavity, or they can perform a procedure called optic nerve fenestration where they cut little holes in the lining of the optic nerve to release fluid out and release pressure off the optic nerves. So that's the high-pressure sort of uh, condition. Then the low-pressure condition, um, which is very big news in the headache world um, because it's so often misdiagnosed. Um, if a patient hasn't had a lumbar puncture or lumbar surgery or some sort of traumatic event and presents with this type of headache, it's, it's missed most probably 90, let's say 95% of the time. It might take years and years for the patient to eventually be diagnosed correctly. And really what a low-pressure headache is, is just like the high-pressure headache, you get worse when you lie down, and often you feel the headache is the worst when you wake up in the mornings because you've been lying down the whole night. So the low-pressure is the opposite, Dean. 
where you your headache gets worse when you stand up and the pressure drops in the cranial system. So if you have a postural headache that is better on lying and worse when standing up, that's a low-pressure headache. And usually um, we mostly see it in neurology post-lumbar puncture, what's called a post-dural puncture headache. When the dura of the meninges has been has been uh, punctured by a lumbar puncture needle, or maybe a woman has given birth and she's had a spinal and um, anesthesia for a, for a Caesar, so then you can have a leak there, and the leak of the fluid out will create a low pressure um, situation in the system, and then you'll get a headache that is related to standing up. Happens probably in about 20% of patients undergoing lumbar punctures. Can be avoided in certain ways by using a certain needle and a certain way of doing it and giving the patient fluids, making sure the patient lies down for five to six hours after the lumbar puncture. About 90% of these cases develop within the three, first three days of having the procedure, but it can be delayed and come like a week or two afterwards. And there often are associated symptoms of neck stiffness, a bit of noise in the ear, tinnitus. There might be some um, photosensitivity or photophobia, so light might bother them. They might have hyperacusis or some phonophobia, so loud noises might bother them, nausea, uh, dizziness. Most cases will resolve in a week if you, le- if you leave them. A lot of patients can't take the headache because it's quite severe at times. Um, and sometimes they need to have what's called a patch where you take, uh, you take some blood from the person's arm, just like they're giving blood. And you take a large amount, maybe 15 mils, 10 to 20 mils, and you inject that back into the lumbar puncture site. It clots up and it patches up the leak. Uh, and that's quite, uh, it's, uh, it's quite a um, satisfying procedure because the headache goes away almost immediately and the patient can't thank you enough. What do you give actually, I was, uh, if, if you, if they're not leaking but they have a post lumbar puncture headache or post spinal headache, what else can you give? I know sometimes you give caffeine or do you just give analgesics? Right. What can you give to treat the so, headache? So conservative measures, I always try to get my patients to um, not have a patch, to give them a 24-48 hour time, sort of time period where we can use conservative measures such as bed rest. So if they're lying flat, they shouldn't have a headache. And these uh, these little tiny holes, these postural puncture headaches and these holes will will almost certainly clear up most of them within 48 hours and the far majority uh, within a week. So if you can get them to lie down, have bed rests, they can get through it. We increase their fluid intake to increase the uh, production of CSF. We might give them different types of methylxanthines like caffeine because caffeine increases CSF production. And then if we can't win with that, we'll go to a blood patch. And then very, very seldom, probably one in... I don't know how many patients, 10,000 patients who might need to end up with surgery if you cannot, uh, if you cannot win with a blood patch. But that's very, very rare. Uh, I just wanted to ask, speak to you a bit about the other cause for low pressure headache, Dean, which is a spontaneous intracranial hypertension where there hasn't been a lumbar puncture. There hasn't been any surgical damage to the, to the, to the, to the dura, but there's a spontaneous leak or tear. And that's the one that's very difficult because it gets missed quite a bit. Um, and it really just has the same features as any low-pressure headache. And it really comes out of the history to suspect this. And then you have to do specific tests 
like uh, you inject dye into the um, spinal cord area and you, you you look for leaks for certain imaging techniques and you have to repair the, the leaks usually surgically. We're going to take our to ad break and we'll be back with Dr. Michael Huth. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. We're speaking to Dr. Michael Huth, specialist neurologist at Netcare Linksfield Hospital. Uh, let's go into something probably more common. Headaches coming from neck pain or back spasms. I, mean, I imagine this Plus, is quite common. Yeah, so cervicogenic headaches, as they call them, which is uh, really a headache that is caused by a problem in the cervical spine, uh, is very common. But at the same time, on the flip side, a lot of headaches, various different types of headaches, can produce not only pain in the head, but also pain in the neck itself, or radiate or transfer pain into the neck. Sometimes only in the neck and not even in the head. And sometimes the head and the neck are painful. And that's because the cervical nerves and the trigeminal nerves, which are the nerves of the face, are quite overlapping in terms of their, their um, pathways. And it's very, very um, complex, but the face up until the sort of midpoint of the cranium or the skull forward is uh, is supplied by branches of what's called the trigeminal nerve. And the, uh, from the top of the skull back, uh, the, the, the head and neck, back of the head and the neck are supplied by the spinal levels and the roots of the second and third cervical vertebra. And <clears throat> usually if you have upper neck problems, you will get pain experienced in the back of the head all the way up to the vertex or the top of the of the cr- uh, cranium um, but remember as i said that there's there is um interconnection between that and the frontal system so you can get um pain all the way up to the front of your head in terms of the forehead and the orbit often we find that uh, nerves such as the occipital nerve, which runs from the back of the head all the way to the top of the eye, almost to the top of the eye, um, is often irritated uh, in neck various neck conditions and c- can produce either sharp shooting pains that go over sort of uh, just above the ear or on top of the head across from back to front. It can also lead to patients having other conditions such as migraine. And in those, those um, conditions and those types of headaches respond very well to what we call occipital nerve blocks, where we take a bit of a mix of anesthetic and uh, cortisone and we inject into the, the greater and the lesser occipital nerve, uh, which come up the back of the head, which lie very superficial, so they're easy to inject. Um, so mostly um, one has to differentiate between a headache that is coming from the neck or a headache that is transmitting pain to a neck to the neck um, and that takes a lot of uh, delving into the patient's history and sometimes um, needs the help of imaging. Uh, of the of the neck and and the brain, really uh, most of these cervicogenic headaches are very very difficult to treat, 
if there is a problem in the neck uh, causing issues in the head, uh, it usually doesn't respond well to to conventional medications. And uh, you have to embark on a therapeutic journey of lifestyle change, i.e. taking mechanical force off your neck and strain off your neck. So often be found in, in say, for example, or young parents who are carrying around babies or people that carry heavy, heavy, um, objects for their work, uh, or people who sit in the wrong types of posture at work. So a lot of lifestyle change is important. We can use, like I said, the corticosteroid injections in certain areas of the neck itself into the joints themselves or into the nerves that emanate out of the neck. And we can use, um, the, the benefits of Botox or uh, botulinum toxin to paralyze or to to weaken the muscles around the neck and head area to reduce spasm and therefore reduce the headache. What about uh, physiotherapy? Does physiotherapy help with uh, uh, cervicogenic? Definitely, yes, def- definitely. So, so physiotherapy, uh, not only physiotherapy in terms of relieving, but just physiotherapy in terms of um, advising on proper posture. And maintaining proper posture of the neck and head makes a big difference. What about uh, previous trauma to the head or neck, previous injuries? How does this cause? Well, post-traumatic headache is called uh, is is a common condition. It uh, it really gets broken up into sort of two major categories. Dean, one is the acute post-traumatic headache, which is usually for a couple of months after the injury, versus a chronic headache after after trauma, which will, can be, you know, months to years. Um, we don't really know exactly what causes a post-traumatic headache because it usually happens even in mild or moderate uh, head injuries where there's no real uh, obvious damage to structures around the head. And sometimes there's not even a whiplash injury. Or sometimes you do have a whiplash injury. There's not much damage to the cervical spine scene, but you have these ongoing headaches. Um most of the post-traumatic headaches that come from mild head injuries usually take the form of either tension-type headache, so that's similar to like a tight squeezing band on both sides of the head, sort of progresses as the day goes on, and also migraine. Uh, it would be like a unilateral throbbing nausea. So those are the two commonest forms of post-traumatic headache. That's uh, tension-type headache and migraine. And sometimes it takes the form of neuralgia, which is sharp shooting sort of nerve-like pain uh, in certain areas of the head. Um, the acute uh, headache is usually happens within seven days of the injury or of regaining consciousness after the injury, and it lasts less than three months. Um, the chronic one is more than three months following the head injury, and that can be quite persistent. Um, we know that it's usually, like I say, it doesn't usually go on an organic basis because we cannot find any anatomical substrate or we cannot find any sort of anatomical physiological cause for the headache. So it's a big role of psychological factors in these, in, in, in these headaches. Uh, and sometimes it, it forms part of what we call the post-concussion syndrome, uh, which is quite disabling. Um, there are some secondary causes for post-traumatic headache that, that, that where there actually is a problem in the head, that would be people have a scalp laceration or local trauma and have continued pain over that laceration. 
for many, many years and tenderness over that area. There might be people who had bleeding in certain areas of the skull uh, or skull fracture or bleeding area, bleeding areas in, in the brain that is, is continues to, to, to cause pain. Uh, there may be obviously pressure, pressure changes, like we said, CSF leaks, et cetera, et cetera, or other problems like clots in the veins or tearing of the arteries that can cause headaches after trauma. But usually, uh, it's, it's these, these primary sort of uh, chronic post-traumatic headaches where it doesn't really have a cause. And it can be very complicated and complex and difficult to treat, even when it's, um, when, especially when it's part of what they call the post-concussion syndrome. The risk factors for people to get these headaches that last for months or years and lo- last longer than three months are mostly when they're female, if they're over 40 years of age, um, if they've had uh, a prior head injury, if they've got psychological factors already pre-existing, um, and if there's ongoing litigation uh, or, or claims regarding the, the accident. Um, and then um, I think just to say that it's very important to um, distinguish the isolated post-traumatic headache from the headache that's part of the syndrome, which is called the post-concussion syndrome. Post-concussion syndrome occurs in people that have had a knock to the head. doesn't have to be – you don't have to be knocked out. It can be a mild head injury. And you have a syndrome which can last anywhere from a week or two up to years of ongoing headaches, lightheadedness and dizziness, blurred vision, um, lack of smell, uh, irritability, mood changes, personality change, difficulty at work, fatigue – poor sleep and memory problems. And that's a very, very um, a big issue for many people. It's, uh, it's received a lot of attention over the last 10, 10 to 15 years. And it, although, although the initial knock can be very, very minor, uh, these patients can suffer quite tremendously and have quite a, have quite an impact on their lives uh, for many years. Do you group with post-traumatic? I don't know where, where this group falls in. Patients with the, Anxiety or um, not uh, post-traumatic stress or um, maybe psychological illness, would that fall into secondary headaches or is that more of a trigger towards other kinds of headaches? So I think that um, psychological problems themselves uh, are often associated with headaches, particularly anxiety but also depression. Uh, and PTSD, and that would definitely fall into a secondary headache, he- headache category because if one treats that psychological condition, be it the anxiety, the depression, or the PTSD properly, and, and it resolves, often the headache will go with it. Um, so that is certainly uh, a secondary headache. In terms of the trauma, I mean, after somebody has had a head injury, Often the psychological factors uh, are uh, that that exist are risk factors for developing chronic post-traumatic headache. Would these pay? What type of headaches would these patients get? Because I know obviously we're speaking about secondary headaches. Can the secondary headaches then become cluster headaches or tension headaches or migraines, or the secondary headaches uh, classified as kind of they secondary headaches, but can they lead to getting one of the more uh, or or mask? Or look like one of the primary headaches. So, so, so most post-traumatic headaches and psychological-related headaches do take the form of either tension-type headache or um, migraine. 
but they can also mimic other types of headaches, such as cervicogenic headaches, etc., with lots of neck spasm and um, pain in the cervical area. Um, and it's important to always take a thorough history, including a psychiatric history or psychological history, and to incorporate that into your treatment of the headache. Almost all headaches, some sufferers will have some uh, impact on their psychology because they often become uh, a patient with chronic pain. As in any chronic pain, there will be an effect on the mood and an effect on, 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 on anxiety. So that always has to be taken into account. And sometimes you get lucky because sometimes, like, you, like, like we've been talking about, the actual psychology is the cause of the headache and then it can be treated. And we have really good treatments for, um, for these psychological conditions these, uh, today. We're just wrapping up our second show in a series and we've been talking about secondary causes of headaches. And, uh, Dr. Huth, as again, uh, same as last time, the time has flown by. It's been really interesting for me and I'm sure it has been for the listeners as well. Can you just give us any ideas what we're going to speak about in our next few shows? Well, I think it's very important to spend some time on the common primary headaches. So we'll be addressing common primary headaches such as migraine, tension type headache and medication overuse headache and, um, what the symptoms are and how to um, how to treat these headaches, um, not only if you are attending to a doctor, but just your, the main sort of lifestyle um, changes you can make to give yourself the best chance of having an effect on your headaches. So I think that we'll spend some time on that, and then we'll see if we have time for um, discussions on other types of headaches after that. Okay, uh, great. And as always... This uh, show will be available as a podcast on the HiFM website, that's HiFM.com. And Dr. Huth, if you don't mind giving out the contact details for your office, please, if people want to come and see you. Sure. You can reach us on 011-647-3559 or email huth.neurology at gmail.com. Thanks to you again, Dr. Michael Huth, specialist neurologist, for your time. It's always a treat. Having you on uh, Disc Care Medical Mondays, I'm your host, Dr. Gene Gerson, and please, God, we'll see you again next Monday.